0: Uh, Yes, so as I said this morning, we are in one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Even William William alluded to to it in his his kids talk, when you know the saying, if you're uh, you're getting a big feed or someone gets a big feed or someone brings a big feed, you'll be saying, who are you feeding the 5,000? Everybody knows this passage. And again, this is one of Jesus' supernatural signs pointing us towards who He is, telling us who He is as God. But let me pose a question to you before we begin this morning. Do we genuinely, we've just said it, do we still believe, do we believe that God does miracles today? Do we believe that? Have that in your mind as we move through this text this morning. Have that in your mind. Because I, well, I want to say this, I have categorical proof this week that miracles still do happen. Uh, my, my car passed MOT, so... Uh, that genuinely is a miracle. So the BM's with us for another year. But do you believe they happen? Or is this just some sort of intellectual assent we have? Well, yeah, we see it in Scripture. Yeah, we say it happens. But do we actually believe it? Do we actually believe it? Let me set the context for us here. John, I always want to remind us of this as we move through John. John sets it up and tells us at the very end why he wrote this gospel. In John 20, he says, these things are written so that you might believe. That's John's purpose in writing this book. He wrote the gospel to move people from a position of unbelief to a position of faith and belief, faith in Jesus. And what we have here from chapter 6 through to chapter 10, and you'll see this in a lot of biblical books, is like this hinge section, things turn. There, there's, there's, up until this point, Jesus has been very much giving us his identity, saying who he is, getting the people to believe who he is. Then what we'll see is 6 through 10 is like this hinge, this turn, and then from 10 onward to the end, you have very much a division of people who believe and people who don't believe. And so what we find here is, is, is just the start of this hinge, these, this hinge section. That's where we're in today John keeps telling us over and over again who Jesus is he is God he is God and the signs that he does points us to that he is God and so that's what we're doing that's what we're looking at again today three real sections today that I want to split this into and the first one is this in the opening verses one to four we see what Jesus, the crowd is following Jesus. The time frame's uncertain. We don't know the exact time frame, but he's traveling from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other, and there's a crowd following him. There are people who are after him, and, and the crowd seems rather large by this stage. And, and John tells us here why they were following Jesus. Why were they following Jesus? John says, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick they saw the signs and they were following Jesus. Right. This crowd is fascinated by this miracle worker from this backward, uh, middle of nowhere, small town. And they follow him because of the signs that he is doing. That's why they want to make Jesus king. They see all these wonderful things that he's doing. They want to make him king. And you'll see in part of the passage today, that's why Jesus actually leaves them. They believe that Jesus is going to come. He's going to overthrow the Roman Empire by doing all these signs and wonders. But that's actually why Jesus moves away from the crowd. Because he knows that's not what he came to do. So here we have a group of people. And they're fascinated by the signs and the wonders and what Jesus is offering. And there's a real danger for us in that today. There always has been a danger. We can see it clearly here. There always has been a danger of people simply being fascinated with Jesus, but not actually committing themselves to Jesus. Jesus doesn't ask for our fascination. He doesn't ask for us to admire him. He asks for us to commit ourselves to him. And there's a huge difference. There will be many, many people. We, we mentioned it last week when I mentioned the, the Islamic faith. There will be many, many people who admire Jesus, who admire his teachings, admire him as a person, but will never spend eternity with him because they have not committed themselves to him. See, this crowd were fascinated by him, but they had not committed themselves to him. And this whole gospel is written so that we might believe, we actually might commit ourselves to Jesus. He must be, in and of himself, the object of our faith. Not what he can offer, not what he can bring, but himself John goes on there to give us a couple of details which seem relatively unimportant, but they're extremely important when you realize the context of who John is writing to so that they may believe. Verse three, Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down. Verse four, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Why are those details important? Why are those two details that seem relatively unimportant, why are they so important? John, in writing his gospel, uh, is, is out of the four gospel writers, he is the one who alludes most to the New Te- or the Old Testament he is the one who looks back most and looks at the Old Testament and, and, and then lo- looks at Jesus and says Jesus is the fulfillment of that if you if you read Revelation which John also has written, you will see it again John always points back to the Old Testament, always alluding to what was and now what Jesus is and what Jesus fulfills Why is that John was writing to uh, writing his gospel to a specifically Jewish audience. And so what he wanted to do all the time was show them, this is, it was the Old Testament, this was Moses, Jesus is the better fulfillment of all that Moses was. And so these two, these two small, insignificant, de- seemingly insignificant details are really, really important. Why is Jesus going up on the mountain? Who else went up on the mountain? were there not that long ago? Moses. John is is making allusions symbolically back to the Old Testament. As Jesus goes up on the mountain, Moses went up on the mountain. Why is the Passover detail important? Because when Moses receives God's word on the mountain, what happens next? As the people of Israel are making their way through the wilderness, he provides manna for them. And this all takes place right after Passover. So Jesus, or John is looking back at the Old Testament. He's looking at what Jesus is doing, and he's seeing the symbolism of what Jesus is doing. Jesus goes up on the mountain, provides for the people, just as God did through Moses. But what he's saying is this. He is, if we're to understand who Jesus is, John is alluding to us, showing us that Jesus is the better Moses. He is the sacrificial Passover lamb. He is the one who provides manna for us, sustainment for us. He is better than Moses because he in himself is the God of Moses. And then in verse 14, as Gareth read first, John says this, this is the prophet. Where does that come from? It comes from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen. Moses says, there is a prophet coming after me. And here we have thousands of years of Jewish interpretation. John is saying, Jesus is that very prophet, always showing us who Jesus is. He's God. He's God. And he must be in and of himself the object of our faith. Now, let me ask us a question as I ask myself the question as we finish up this point. Is Jesus Christ in and of himself, the object of your faith? Or is it what Jesus brings? Is it salvation? Is salvation the object of your faith? You're missing the point. We're missing the point. Is the gifts that Jesus brings us, the object of our faith, if it is, we're missing the point. Jesus himself wants to be the object of our faith. We are to love Jesus, not just what he gives us. The crowd here were fascinated by what Jesus was doing, and they missed the point. He actually moved away from them. hope that won't be us. I hope we won't miss that we are to love Jesus, not just simply what He gives us. He's to be the object. Second thing we see here, uh, very it starts to get really interesting here. Actually, Jesus, and the second thing we see, if you're taking notes, Jesus will test our faith. Jesus will test our faith. Verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. What is Jesus doing when he's testing Philip? What is Jesus doing when he tests our faith? Because if you have been a a follower of Jesus for any amount of time, if you've been a, a Christian for any amount of time, you will know that often our faith is tested. The very faith that we have in Christ is tested. Who does that testing? It is Jesus who does that testing. You see, you cannot, as I said in the first point, commit yourself to following Jesus and not expect testing, not expect trials to come. They're guaranteed Testing is guaranteed. It might be circumstances. It might be trials. It might be our own unbelief. But if we are following Christ, if we have committed ourselves to him, we will be tested. Here we see Jesus testing one of the disciples. Why would we think that that wouldn't happen to us? Why does he do it though? Why does he test our faith? A couple of reasons I want to give you. The first reason is this. Jesus tests our faith so that we might rely on him. Jesus tests our faith so that we might rely on him. First thing he shows us here. He wants us to rely on him. He he, he asks Philip. Now, a bit of context here. John tells us earlier where Philip is from. And it's from a village that is a few miles from where this happens. So Philip's a local. All right, so Jesus goes to the local and says, where are we going to get food to buy these, or to feed these people? So he's asking for some local advice. Let's think about it this way. If you were to come to Earth Friend, if you'd never been in Earth Friend, take yourself to that happy place where you'd never set foot in this place. But if you'd never been to Earth Friend and you came and you were looking for somewhere to eat, who would you ask? Well, I would like to think that you would ask me, right? And I would be able to tell you. I would, like to be able to, I, would, I would say to you, you're a stranger, come to us, friend, where's the best place to go so that we might find food to eat? I would say Big Bites, perhaps. Because there you can get a mixed hoagie. Isaac agrees, fully agrees. He's fully on board with this point. That's the first time he's probably ever been fully on board with the point I've made. But Big Bites, you can get a mixed hoagie with everything in house sauce. Unbelievable. Your toileting might change for a few days. Granted. But... Unreal. Worth every bit of it. Or I could say country fried. Go to the country fried. You get a kebab. You get a wee bit of curry and, and, and a salad because the salad makes it healthy. And a Diet Coke, obviously. But you could do that. Local knowledge. You would come to me. Jesus goes to Philip and says, Philip, where are we going to get? You're from here. Where are we going to get the food to feed all these people? And what does Philip do? Philip says, we don't have enough money. We're not going to have enough money to feed all these people. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. And here's where Philip goes wrong. He has just witnessed Jesus heal the official son. He has just witnessed Jesus heal a man at the pool. Jesus asked him this question to test him. And Jesus wanted the answer. You can do it. You feed them. But Philip falls into the trap that every single one of us, I would imagine, fall into at a certain time or, or at any time. The test comes, the problem comes, the trial comes, and we try to manage it. And we try to work it out. And we try to figure out the process. And Jesus is standing here all the time saying, it's me, I'm here. I'm the answer. Philip, unfortunately, gets it wrong. He's going to manage it. He's going to try to come up with the the math to figure out the money, how much this is going to take to solve the problem. And that is not what Jesus wants. Jesus wants him to come to say, I depend on you. I rely on you. You do it. And as I said at the start, we come in here this morning, and there's a myriad of problems in the room. There's a myriad of situations of life going on where you don't possibly see an answer, but you're trying to figure it out. And what I want to encourage us to do today is simply give it to Jesus. Simply give it to Jesus because he's the only one that can sort it out. The problem here is too big for Philip. The problem here is too big for the disciples. The problem here is not going to be solved in any sort of human way. The only one that can sort this is Jesus. And so when circumstances come, when trials come, what's our first response? Fix it. Or pray. Pray fix it or pray? Which one is it? We need to grow ourselves towards our first response being prayer. Our first response. I need you, Jesus. So the first thing, the first reason why Jesus tests our faith is to get us to rely on Him. But the the second reason, and I want this to encourage you is to strengthen our faith. It's to strengthen our faith. And it's because of who he is and the way that he tests, we can have confidence in who he is. Look at this. John gives us a, a very small, small detail here, but it is probably one of the most significant details in Scripture. It's, he says this Jesus knew, he does it to test him, but Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. Of course he does. Of course he does. He is God in the flesh. He is not surprised by this. This didn't catch him off guard. It's not as if he went up on the mountain and he looked around and he saw this crowd and went, oh, didn't think that was going to happen. He knows exactly what he's going to do. It's not as if he needs to put this plan suddenly into action that that he never thought of. Jesus is not this really great strategic thinker where all of a sudden a a crisis comes and he he then thinks about it and puts a plan into action. No, he knows exactly what he's going to do. And folks, this needs to change. This should change the way that we face trials, the way that we face life. Because if Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do anyway, what does that mean for us? That means we rest. That means we stop trying to figure it out. That means we stop trying to work things out in our heads because what? He knows exactly what he's going to do. He knows exactly what he's going to do. I said in the first service that Romans 8:28 is one of those verses that is very easily said, but not very easily understood in the midst of trials and hardship. Everything works good everything works for good what i want to say is this if people are in the midst of pain and trials and hardship it's probably better that we don't quote that verse to them at the time because when people are in pain and hardship and trials that doesn't make any sense hindsight is indeed a wonderful thing And in hindsight, we can look back at trials and pain and and troubles. And then we can maybe say, yes, everything worked for good. And we can be really theological about it and say, yes, God works everything for good. But at the time, it doesn't make sense. But Jesus knows exactly what he is going to do. In the situation that you're thinking of now, Jesus knows exactly what he is going to do. And so from that, I think we we need to take confidence from that. We need to take rest from that. I want you to be encouraged by that. Some people will find that really hard to be encouraged by because you're a fixer. But I want you to be encouraged. Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do. And this should strengthen our This should strengthen our faith. Jesus tests us so that we might rely on him. Philip didn't. Philip relied on his own ability to figure things out. Jesus tests our faith to strengthen our faith because he knows what he's going to do. And we should have confidence in that. So the first thing we see, that Jesus is the object of our faith and the object of our faith alone. Jesus will test our faith. And the third thing we see is this, Jesus will supply our need. Jesus will supply our need. So Jesus takes the loaves, and takes the fish, and he distributes them to all those who are seated around. And there is an abundance of, what Jesus provides. An abundance. We're told that there's 12 baskets lifted up. And again, most scholars think that that what John is doing here is is making an Old Testament uh, symbol, illusion of the 12 tribes of Israel gathered around God. But it's this abundance. Jesus doesn't just give them a snack. He doesn't just give them something so they can get through the next couple of hours. No, they eat their fill and more, and there is leftovers because that's the God that we know. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God that we serve. He's not a stingy God. He is a God of abundance. And so this miracle takes place, this feeding of the 5,000. And All these people are fed and they're all satisfied. And trust me, this is a miracle. And here's, I want to go back to the very start when I asked you, do you believe miracles still happen today? And I hope, I hope your answer is yes. Even though, as I said when I prayed, we don't appeal to our experience. We don't appeal to our circumstance. We appeal to the word of God and we look at the word of God and we say, yes, miracles happen, And yes, they still do. A lot of people don't believe that. A lot of biblical scholars don't believe that, don't believe that miracles happen today. I'm going to tell you now one way in which a well-respected 20th century biblical scholar tried to talk away this miracle, right? These are intelligent people. These are people who are far smarter than I have, probably about five degrees, a PhD, whatever. And listen to the way that they try to talk away the miracles of Jesus. Listen to this. Here's what happened. Jesus had a secret cave behind him. There you go. Jesus had a secret cave behind him filled with Ormo bread. It didn't say that. I added that wee bit. That's the best they can do. Well-respected biblical scholars, can that's the best they can do to talk away the miracles of Jesus. He had a secret cave. It must have been like the bat cave or something. And it was back there, and all of a sudden he had this pre-planned, and he went, because obviously they can't really read the text as plainly as the text is, because Philip, obviously, I'm sure Jesus, if he had had that secret cave back there, would have employed the disciples to fill that cave with the bread beforehand, but Philip was obviously unaware of this. He didn't know about it, but that's the best they can do. Now, we can laugh at that and take a good laugh at it because we should laugh at it because it's ridiculous, but are we any different? Are we any different? Are we just like those biblical scholars? We just wouldn't say we are, but are we like them in that we have some sort of intellectual assent to miracles happening but we don't really believe that they do in our hearts because very easily we can fall into that trap there's a term known as and we've done series in the gifts of the spirit and so you know my position on that if you've been around here I believe in the gifts of the spirit but what we can fall into is a thing called functional cessationism Functional cessationism. Cessationist is the belief that, that the gifts haven't continued, that the supernatural stopped when, when Jesus ascended. What we can fall into is saying that we believe in the gifts, but not actually exercising them at all. Or seeing them work out. Is that you? Is that me? Where we would say that we believe in miracles, but we don't actually believe that they happen. Let that not be us let that not be us. I want to challenge you and I want to challenge myself this morning. Are we any different than the unbelieving world around us when it comes to this stuff? You see, the unbelieving world doesn't believe that miracles happen. Stop talking about it because it doesn't happen. But do we believe in a God who does what He wants, how He wants, when He wants in a supernatural way? You see, the unbelieving world don't believe because they believe this is all there is. What you see, the stage, the speakers, the doors, whatever. We feel, we touch, we taste. Everything's tangible. That's what the unbelieving world sees. The church must be different. The church must go beyond what we see. The church must go beyond to Jesus, the sustainer, the creator, the maker of all things. And believe that he can do the same today. C.S. Lewis said this, Miracles are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some to see. Miracles are always pointing to God and who he is. And it's the same here in this. Jesus is telling us who he is. Right, to wrap up. What do we see from this miracle? Well, first of all, we see the extravagance of Jesus. The extravagance of the provision of Jesus. And of course we know Jesus is extravagant in his provision. Because all we need to do is look at the cross. God is not stingy. God didn't hold back when he provided for our salvation. He provided the very best thing he had. And he gave it all for us. Just as he provided for these people more than enough. He provides for us more than enough in our salvation. And the second thing we see very clearly again today is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. One, he's extravagant in his provision and two, he is God. And so when we think about, when we even come to communion today, when we think about the fact that he must be the object of our faith, him and him alone, When we think about his body broken and his blood shed, think about him. Don't think about what it did for you. Think about him. Just think about him. Dwell on him. Dwell on his, just who he is. Come worship him. He alone deserves every bit of our worship. We see he's the object. We see he tests, but he does it with good reason. And we see he supplies our needs miraculously often. Let me pray first, and then we're going to have communion together. Father, Again, we thank you for your word that always, 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 always points us to Jesus. We thank you that you've given us these signs and symbols that, again, point us to Jesus. Communion points us to Jesus. And so, Father, as we worship the Trinitarian God now, you have told us that the Son is to be worshipped and adored and honored equally to you so help us do that help us give him his place help us love help us love him for who he is thank you in his, his beautiful name we pray amen and so if you are a follower of Jesus this morning I invite you to come to remember the son to worship him to give him glory to give him honor that he deserves We do that through taking the symbols of the bread and the cup, Uh, the bread symbolizing His body which was broken for us, the cup symbolizing His blood that was poured out extravagantly for us. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath flood lose all their guilty stains. Let's focus on Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I lovingly ask that you don't take communion. It wouldn't make sense for you to do that, proclaiming something that you don't believe in. And so let's come now and worship Jesus.